Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Have you ever met someone and thought their job sounded cool? Or perhaps you're wondering how you can get to a position that doesn't seem to match any of the qualifications you have at the moment. Well, if so, this podcast is for you. We found some people with jobs that you might not necessarily know about or expect people to have, and we're going to ask them about how they got there. Welcome to What Do They Do, a podcast about jobs and how people got them. Hi there, welcome to What Do They Do? And today we're joined by Lawrence Tajani. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Dean and I have worked with Lawrence for a little while now, so really excited to get him on and have a little chat with him about kind of what has led him to, to where he is now. So yeah, big welcome. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, sure. So my name is Lawrence Tajani. Um, I'm an ed tech consultant, so I go around the UK and train schools. I'm using te- technology in their schools and in their classroom. I also work with disengaged students and disadvantaged students as well. Just for those that might be listening that aren't aware of the ed tech industry, can you tell us that what, what do you mean by ed tech? Um, so essentially, um, I'm working with schools on how they use technology to enhance teaching and learning in their classroom and also outreach with students as well. So this could be a range of technology and also software as well. It's probably worth pointing out that it is mid-COVID isolation that we're recording this. So the role of technology in education is probably at the forefront of every parent's mind at the moment as they receive a variety of bits home to try and sort of manage home learning. So uh, it's an interesting time for that, I imagine. Yeah, it's a real interesting time. And it's actually made me realise that, um, as well as we call it educational technology, it's literally covering everything at the moment to actually being able to join a webinar, being able to use your phone to interact with um, teachers, families as well. So I even find I'm doing webinars for families to be able to use um, different programs to make sure they're able to keep in contact with their loved ones. Nice. So on what do they do, Lawrence? The idea is that we delve a bit into understanding how you got to doing what you're doing now. So if you've ever had one of those conversations where you're talking to someone and you think, oh, they do something pretty cool, or that sounds interesting, or what does that even mean? That's why we're here, to help people be nosy, basically, and ask those questions from afar. So I guess the first thing is, like, take us back. What, what did you do back at school? You know, were you a good kid in school? Were you the kind of kid that messed about a lot and was naughty? What happened there? Uh, I suppose you can already um, hear me laughing. Um, <laughs> but, that means you're really good, right? <laughs> well, um, we'll go into it. And it's just about how long have we got. Um, so <laughs> based on the laugh and the kind of embarrassment um, is I wasn't um, a good kid. Um, I got into quite a lot of trouble 
in school. Um, I also wasn't your most academic kid as well. Um, but one of the things I put out there, I was generally just an angry kid, if I look back at it, of like why um, I behaved in certain manners. So um, I actually started off in um, a school called Geoffrey Chaucer. Um, and that's based, if you're from London, it's based in the Elephant and Castle area. And it's one of, I would say, the toughest schools in Southeast London. Um, the first day being dropped off at school, I remembered um, that someone had come to me in the year above, in year eight, and said, best thing you can do is find someone and have a fight with that student and make sure, you're, make sure you win. Because if not, the rest of your life in this school is going to be quite painful. And that's like prison rules. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the advice for prisoners on their first day. Take out the big man. Um, I didn't go for a big man. I didn't go for anyone. I kept my head down and um, I didn't try and get into a fight. I was just very aware that if I ever did get into a fight, which I did, is that I was not losing that fight because I didn't want to be a victim during that um, staying in the school. So I was at the school for about three years. Um, my mum didn't want me to go to that school. She completely hated it. Um, she was one of the only parents that dropped me off on my first day. Most parents um, didn't drop off their kids at school. And I just remember walking through the gate and I'm seeing like 30-year-old men who claim to be in year 11 or year 10. And you're just like, whoa, what is this? You know. So bless my mum. She wanted me to go to St. Uh, St. Michael's Catholic College. Um, college. So she kept on going to the school um, monthly. I even think sometimes weekly to check if they had any openings or anything like that on the waiting list. And she did that for three solid years. So um, eventually um, I got a place um, at St. Michael's. But funny story is from Canada Water, um, we used to share a bus route going to like past their school to Geoffrey Chaucer. And St. Michael's were renowned for being this people's bit of victims. So we, I would get on the bus. I, I own this here. I'm not the person I am back then. Let me just put that out. Full disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got up to the top of the bus and there were some St. Michael's students there. And basically, you know, back of the bus was the cool place to sit. And I basically, with the rest of my boys, told them to get down to the front of the bus. This is our seat. I didn't envision that I would be there in three years' time. And we made well, their life a bit miserable. And I remember my first day at St. Michael's and there was this glass window. I had this like really kind of, for them, like posh uniform compared to um, Jeffrey Chelsea's uniform. And I just remember the kids walking past and pointing at me going, there's that kid, you know, he's made our life hell and he's in our uniform. And I was just like, mum, please send me back to Jeffrey Chelsea, please. <laughs> like I have to go into the playground with these kids. Um, and just say when I went into the playground, it, it was eventful. You just put it that way on my first day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wasn't allowed out into the playground for a bit and yeah. And how so. did that turn out in the end? Like, was there something, did it make you think anything about, Oh my God, the way I've treated these people over the last few years, like, did it, did that change anything about how you approached problems or those other people that you were maybe not nice to on the bus in the past? Um, at that stage, no. <laughs> um, it sounds quite callous there, but no. And um, I think it's as you grow up and certain things start to happen to you, you then start to empathise and go, "I was, I wasn't a nice person then. I wasn't a nice kid. I'm not going to say an adult. I wasn't a nice kid then, and I didn't really understand how my f actions affect other people. Essentially, um, after the first couple of weeks, they did um accept me. Um, it was still a bit tense. Um, and I was still with, um, I still spoke to some of my friends who were from Jeffrey Chaucer. And actually, I would say in quotations, friends, because there was an incident and they weren't my friends, essentially. Um, right. Something had happened at the school. I got into um, a disagreement with one of the kids and they said they were going to get their brothers down. You know how it is. Going to get my brothers down after school, watch, meet you there and everything. And I made a phone call to some of my boys. Um, they came down, um, but I got into trouble. 
I can't remember what it was. I think the deputy head had asked me to pick something up, like some paper that I hadn't dropped on the floor. And I felt like I was being targeted. So I said, my mum didn't send me to school to be a cleaner. That was the kind of the lip that I would give back. So I had a detention with a deputy head, literally in his office, not like the full school detention in his office, doing my homework. So there was the issue outside of school that was going on, but obviously I couldn't make it. And to be honest, that is something that's significant in my life because that actually saved me from so much trouble because the boys that had came down um, to kind of, as you would say, maybe back it for me or defend me, whatever you want to call it, had come down earlier and had actually carried out um, a series of robberies. Um, and I wasn't aware of that. Um, I didn't ask them to come down to the school for that. It was just like, I thought I was going to be completely outnumbered. And I thought I was going to literally get mullered. Um, so I didn't know anything about that until three weeks later on a Sunday, um, my mum is a devout Christian. Um, we were on our way to um, church. I had my best church shoes on. And I mean, these were like amazing church shoes. They were like, had studs like at the front, you know, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and um, there was a bang on the door. And um, essentially my house got raided that day by the police. And I was completely confused. Didn't know what um, happened. Um, my room got searched. Um, I was thrown across, um, against the wall, handcuffed in front of my younger siblings and my mum. And I had caused my mum quite a bit of problems. But at that moment in time, it wasn't rage from my mum. It was more kind of that look of disappointment. And I will never forget that of like her son's being handcuffed. And I was taken down to the station and interviewed. And some of the stuff that came out in that interview, I was gobsmacked. Now, like, let me just set the context here of like how I look. And particularly in secondary school, I'm probably about five foot in secondary school, right? I'm about five foot seven and a half now, just to clear that up. About five <laughs> foot. <laughs> um, and the police had said or said that my friends, in quotations again, had said that I was the ringleader and that they were scared of me. And I had forced them to carry out the robberies in and around the area. And I'm sitting there looking like, well, some of them are like six foot. How am I forcing them? And you believe them. And luckily, going back to that detention, because I was actually with my deputy head, and he had to write a statement for me and give me, I can't believe I'm saying it's an alibi <laughs> that yeah. I was with him. That saved me because essentially it was then, instead of just my word against four other boys, it was actually, no, he was literally with me. So that's kind of the way I started to change my environment and the people that I hang around. And my mom always used to say this to me, you know, show me your friends and I will show you who you are. And that's when I really understood that saying there. So, yeah. That is an awesome phrase. I don't think I've ever heard that before, but I love that. It's definitely something to live by. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's definitely. So leading up to that point with the detention and that incident and you at school and you're saying like you weren't the best student <laughs> and you're giving your mum some, some sort of troubling times. Um, what did you see as like, your trajectory from school and beyond at that point in your life? Because obviously we now sort of where you're working with schools, is that was that in anywhere in your thoughts at the time? Like, oh, maybe when I'm older, I'll work in schools and, and mentor kids and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, I um, didn't see myself in um, education. Um, if I step back a bit, I didn't even know what I was going to be doing after GCSE. I just never thought about it. Never really had that conversation. And I think it's that whole thing about believing in yourself and uh, am I destined to do that? Um, just we weren't having, or I can only speak for myself, I wasn't having a higher level conversation about what's the next step after secondary school. It was just very kind of isolated in itself, you know? Um, and the reason why I didn't believe that I could do what I'm doing now is I was in the bottom set. Um, I moved up maybe to the group above the bottom set. Um, and when I started to settle down in school, it was really in year 11. And for some reason, I still believe I could condense everything 
into those six months. Like, it's ludicrous when you think about it, that I can condense everything, all my subjects, I've not done anything more or less through my whole secondary school life, and I would be fine. And I even remember waking up on results day and swanning into school like, these results are going to be great. And I had done <laughs> basically nothing. You know, I just thought, yeah, but it's going to be great. And I turned up, opened up my exam results, and I basically failed every subject apart from drama and um, IT. Um, everything else I failed. And I kind of looked around at my friends who were there at school, um, who I was getting into trouble with, or just mucking about, then it was light um, trouble. And they actually passed. And I was really confused. So I said to them, so, well, how, how come you've passed? And he was like, well, yeah, I might play a clown in school, but when I go home, I, I get on with my stuff. You know, I do study. And I was like, I've missed a complete trick here. You know? <laughs> so when you got <laughs> home, you carried on doing whatever you wanted as well. Yeah, I just carried on doing whatever I wanted, um, just not doing any work. You know, I was that classic kid in your classroom who was just like, Teachers would say he has potential, but talks too much, doesn't do the homework, doesn't fully engage, and is a class class clown. Yeah. How did this go down with your mum, Lawrence? And you know, what was she like at school? Did she have ambitions for you at that point? And you just thought, oh, it's just a mum being a mum. Like, what was that like around that time? Um, my mum, she was amazing. She she thought I was going to conquer the world like any mother does you know um she was very supportive of the school she backed up the school she wasn't just one of those parents that nodded and was just like okay um believe me when we got home she tried everything within her power um to make sure i was on task um if there's something she didn't understand she would invest in tutors and i have to say my parents didn't come from money, didn't have money. They were working two jobs. And even just um, recalling it now, it makes me feel really guilty that I actually wasted their money um, because they were trying to give me the best start in terms of investing in tutors. And sometimes I wouldn't turn up for tutoring. I just was like, I don't want to do it. You know, and that, that's really embarrassing when you take a step back and think about that. You know, so she was completely supportive. Um, but I think equally as every parent, you don't want to feel like your child is actually that bad. Well, maybe she did have to take a step back and go, actually, he probably needs even a tougher hand in, in a sense, you know? Right. So, yeah. It's, it's interesting, right? Because I think it goes to show that you can have the most supportive parents in the world trying to do their best for their kids, which I think most parents do, right? Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it does come back around to those people that you end up associating with and and what they're doing at school, that ultimately has an impact as well, right? You're not just a product of your parents, but the people around you. And it comes back to that saying that your mum shared with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, for me, it's interesting because in those times when I was at St. Michael's, I didn't see anyone like me. And I think that's a key thing um, when I think about it and when I speak to kids in general. And when I say like me, it's not just based on my race. It's also based on, you know, your class and whatever, whatever you might want to call it, okay, that a student can relate to. So if I look at my um, school in that time, I didn't see that many black teachers in positions of power. So I didn't know actually you could aspire to get to that level. I mean, I didn't really see an influential black teacher until I started teaching myself, if that makes sense. So that, that was huge. And also in my school, there were only um, seven black girls and seven black boys. Now, I don't know if that's just a coincidence, but <laughs> that literally, um, that's what it was. And even when we would have dinner around, uh, I'm in a dining hall, it normally at the desk, you can fit six people the seventh person would try and just fit in on that desk, you know, and you're unaware of it. Let's be clear. As, as your kids are growing up, you're unaware of it until you get into really year 10. And there were even bits where I couldn't go through Saturday school. Not that I probably wanted to, um, because there was NF marches in Bermondsey around those time. So a letter would go out to parents saying, 
these keep your child at home. We can't guarantee their safety from back and forth. So these are just some of the times. So this is where that some of that anger builds up as well. Of like, why am I being discriminated against? And why am I not getting access to that? And again, I mean, even if I got there on a Saturday, would I have done the work? Let's be completely honest. But it wasn't until I got to college after I'd failed all my GCSEs that I started to see a community of people that looked like me and some teachers, but actually wanted to strive and do well. And actually it became embarrassing saying that you failed your GCSEs, you know, because you're in a group where these are people that, you know, got an A in maths in year 10 and I still haven't got maths GCSE. Um, and I, later on, I'll tell you a story about when I um, met my wife in college as well. And it, I, it's pretty hilarious. She reminds me of it quite a bit, you know, so. Yeah. After, after the results didn't pan out for your GCSEs, was getting into college a bit of an issue or like, how did you, what, what did you study? What did you do to get into college? So <laughs> I'm quite lucky in the sense that um, our school is a feeder school to a college. So I was guaranteed a place. So, uh, um, but when I went to my enrollment day, um, I remember this, um, man with thickest glasses I've ever seen in my life. They were like, um, the old milk bottles, the bottom of them, like caps for glasses. And I remember giving him my GCSE results and he sighed, looked up <laughs> at me and said, um, I don't think you carrying on with academia is for you. Maybe you want to go and do something with your hands. Now, I'm, I, I am not discrediting anyone who's out there doing anything with their hands, but I think I got really annoyed in terms of like, you're going to sit there and tell me what I can't and cannot do, you know, or what I can do, should I say. And that's the moment where, again, things started to kick in. and was like, I don't like this. I don't like people telling me what my destiny is. And I realized actually a powerful man is a man with choices and I needed to start to open up choices. So I fought back and said, no, I would like to resit all my GCSEs. I would like to resit them all. Um, so I ended up doing maths and English and um, I did a BTEC and I did some others um, and I passed them all you know, and did really well in them. And it wasn't easy. It, it was hard. It, like I had to come for foreign concept of studying outside of an establishment. That was foreign to me. As much as people think, that, what, what do you mean it's foreign to me? But I had to develop that discipline. And I was actually speaking to my friend yesterday, um, who's known me from college, and he actually said to me, <laughs> he goes, Lawrence, when I met you all those years ago, I'd never thought you would turn out like this, you know, <laughs> in the fact that, you can articulate yourself so well. Like you're one of the people that I love to listen to and speak to. Like I just never envisioned this happening at all. I'm like, okay, thank you. I think that is a compliment there, you know? It's backhanded, but it's a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, did, did they elaborate on what they thought you'd end up like? <laughs> I don't think he was willing to go that far yet because um, he's um, godfather to his child. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I think he just was like, let me just put that out there and kind of give you a compliment there. But I, I could completely understand what he was saying, um, even in terms of my language skills and speaking, articulating, it was very limited. And you will find a lot of um, boys particularly will get into fights because they can't find the right vocabulary to articulate themselves and express their emotion as well. So that is something I had to develop over time. It's still not perfect now, but again, it's something that I continuously try to work on myself. I think this, you know, all of this just underlines the importance of how education should be available to everyone. And unfortunately, we are still in a position where the class that you're born into, the situation that you're born into, ultimately can still affect your outcomes for multiple reasons, right? whether it's because there isn't representation uh, across the education sector where everyone goes to school to see role models that they can look up to and they can see themselves in their shoes. And I, I wonder actually how much do you think that has changed since you were at school to today? Has um, the situation changed a lot or do you feel like actually there are kids that are going through exactly the same thing on the same, in the same numbers? 
I just have to rewind um, just a bit because there, there's a person who played a pivotal role in my life. Um, his name is Marlon Robinson, um, and he was um, in charge of the learning unit, the LSU learning support unit. Um, and I was the first student ever in a learning support unit. Um, I don't know if I should be celebrating that, but yeah. But, at um, St. Michael's, you mean? At St. Michael's, yes. Um, so it was internal exclusion for those who are not sure um, what that is. Um, and he worked with me quite a bit and he established that, yes, you're an angry individual. What do you want? And he challenged me to think about actually about doing better, you know. And when I failed my GCSEs, he was one of the first people that I spoke to and said, you've got two options, give up and become a statistic or push through the pain barrier. And I was able to do that. So I think it existed and it was starting to creep in to schools in terms of having that support and that kind of mentoring going on. I just don't think it was a big thing then. Um, so I don't know after I left, did they put this in place? But going on to what I see now and when I go into, when I go into schools, I don't think there's as much, even if you think about some of the issues that we have going on in society in terms of knife crime, gangs and stuff like that, you could actually stem it back to when youth clubs have been shut down, you know, or extracurricular, extracurricular activities not being available. And that might be due to funding and stuff like that. I know a lot of schools are getting in guest speakers and I think this is another way we can potentially pivot in terms of not having to get the guest speaker physically into the school, but based on what's been going on with this pandemic is actually why not have someone jump on a Google Meet or jump on a conference call and talk to kids and do mentoring through that way. So this is another fantastic way we can potentially pivot as well. You hinted already that you became a teacher in yeah. the end. So take us through that arc of the story from college to becoming a teacher. Like, how did that happen? And what led you down that path? So okay, even when I got to university, um, I didn't think I was going to, it was never in my mind that I was going to be um, a, a teacher. And it all kind of just fell into place. So I had a job like, so with my degree, you have to go and do a placement year. Um, and I had it all lined up and everything to go and do. Um, and then unfortunately, um, I suffered from epilepsy. I had a severe epileptic attack. And um, I lost my memory. Um, so I, um, I think it was about a year. Um, it's such a weird question. That one when people go, have you got your memory back? And I'm like... I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think I've got it all back, but I don't know. You're gonna have remember. To me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wasn't able to go on that placement that had been set up, and that was in the city. So I actually phoned my old school and said, Look, I'm in this predicament. Um, could I potentially come and work in your IT support department? You know, because um for St. Michael's in that age, they were ahead of what schools were doing. Um so and your degree was in IT? Yeah, it was in software engineering. Okay. So my degree was in software engineering. Um, uh, so then I went and worked in my own school and in the IT department. And I think the initial day when I came in for the staff meeting in September, people were really shocked. They were like, cause some of the teachers, they were like, what's he doing here? And when I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm studying at university. And I was like, I'm studying software engineering too. And they were like, oh, okay. And one of the <laughs> teachers were really direct. We're like, I didn't expect you to do that. And another teacher was really direct. was like, I thought you would have been in prison. And I was like, no, no, um, I'm here working here um, at St. Michael's. Um, so was doing that, but I started to speak to some of the year 11 boys and the year 10 boys during my break time. And they would come up to um, the computer office and speak to me. So in a sense, so I was kind of mentoring them without knowing that that's what I was doing. And the head teacher had picked up on that. I was doing this and that I had a certain rapport 
with the students as well. So she made it her mission, and she equally she says this that I've got nine months to convince you to be a teacher because you have a, a God given talent with young people, and it's, everyone can see that. And I was like, no, I'm not really interested. I've got a business that I've just started up as well, a web design business, and you know, I'm going to go straight to the city. And no, I'm, I appreciate everything you're doing. I'm, with me then she started to reduce some of my it training i was like actually why don't you just have a group that you can work with or support in an it lesson and i really started to enjoy that and then she said to me um in the last two months i've got a proposal for you give me two years so do your training program do your nqt year um and i'll offer it to you at four days a week so you have one day to work on your business as well and I was like, that's a no-brainer. That's a complete no-brainer in terms of we've got income coming out of university. And when I come out of university, one day a week to work on my business. And I was like, yeah, got to do that. Um, so that's how I got into it. And I never left. <laughs> I was there for a good um, 11 years, 10, 11 years, while working with um, becoming a teacher, should I say. Do you still speak to her? Is she still there? Oh, yeah. So she's not there anymore, but I um, actively do speak to her. Um, she messages me to see how I'm getting on. Um, I've worked on some projects with her outside of um, teaching as well. Um, so I, I think I, there's a lot to thank her for in terms of seeing that potential there and actually pushing it. And while I was in um, teaching, she really pushed me year upon year in terms of going on to the next level. So Every now and again, I'll say, right, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to the city or I'm going to go and focus on my business. And she's like, I think you're ready for another promotion, Lawrence. And that's how I just kept on staying. And then, yeah, so that's how I kind of got into teaching and stayed in teaching. And it's become one of my, um, I'm very passionate about it from my first loves. I wonder how many people have got a similar story about that canny boss who was always there at the right time, just as you were wavering or think about other options, who just had enough interest in their employees to ask a question and just ask you what you're up to, and they go, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, we might have an opportunity in this, or the proactive ones who already kind of had something lined up for you. I know, mm-hmm. I, I know I've got someone in mind that I've worked for, um, and are there people who don't get that, right? Mm-hmm. The that pay no attention, and they lose that person from the organization. And I think keeping good people, there's such an important part to any organization of identifying talent and identifying a range of talents, not just talent in your job description, but just those, those wider skills and cultivating that and keeping good people in the organization. There's a, there's a few kids in my form when I was teaching who, you know, maybe on paper, they didn't look amazing, but knowing them and kind of talking to them and working with them, you knew that if any company could just get them through the door, that this kid would be amazing for that organization. You know, they'd, they'd add value. And that was a bit I always found interesting is that spotting potential. At the moment, it's done through, it's always done through exam results. So take yourself, Lawrence, where your exam results are GCSE, obviously no one's going to pick you up on those and go, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the one I want. But what we've seen is that wasn't that wasn't an indicator of your true potential. It took a few little deviations and obviously through college um, and Marlon and those people who kind of saw that potential for you to then go, right, I'm going to tap into this now. And actually, you mentioned your wife, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Who you met at college and you said that she had a, a rather influential role at that time too. Oh, absolutely. She was massive and she is still massive to the success that I'm currently enjoying, I would say, maybe. Um, so I saw her in college one day and I thought, she's really hot. And <laughs> I, I'm going to go and speak to her. And I went over and um, tried to have a conversation with her. And my vocabulary was still pretty limited then. It was every, like, uh, 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 every other word. And she was looking at me like, is he okay? And then she asked me, um, 
what are you studying at college? And that completely threw me off because I was like, why is she asking me what I'm studying? I'm interested in you. And that kind of was like, this is the caliber of the guy that I want to be speaking with, you know? So when she asked me, I kind of went, GCSE. Like I whispered it. I don't know why I whispered. Because she said, speak up, pardon. And then everyone else kind of heard around her. Like she's asking to speak up. What are they talking about? And I was like, "Um, (laughs) I'm currently resitting my GCSEs. And then she kind of was like, what? Like kind of shocked, like, do do we do that at this college? And I was like, yeah, there are a group of us who reset GCSEs at the college. Um, Is this how you imagined, like when you strutted over? <laughs> absolutely. Oh, not. yeah. Let me chat to this. Let me chat to this person. Uh, this is going badly. Yeah, completely. Absolutely not. But um, she completely helped me all the way through um, because I got diagnosed with dyslexia at college um, that wasn't picked up at school. And that's probably because I wasn't behaving enough or engaging enough for it to be picked up. So she helped me massively um, in terms of she would sit down and go through uh, maths, GCSE with me, English as well. Um, and we would study together, literally. And it took a whole year for her to say yes to being my girlfriend. Like, literally, it's a running joke amongst all us boys and friends because we all talk. And it's like, it took him a whole year, literally a whole year. Um, and he just studied with her for a whole year, basically. So I think it's when she believed that I was serious and I was going to go on to the next level. She was just like, okay, yeah, fine. But yeah, she, she, she's completely amazing as well. I feel like those last two stories you told there really just show the power of people providing opportunities to others. Mm. And it's something that if I think about my story, I can probably pin back to an initial opportunity that someone gave me that led to me doing what I'm doing now. And whilst clearly it's on you and on each individual to carve their own path out of that opportunity, that opportunity is what gave them the springboard to move forward, right? And so I always, when I go forward now and when I'm working with people, I always try to think about how can I be that person that can provide those opportunities, whether it's something small or something bigger, referring someone for a job, offering someone who I know is in a particular field the opportunity to do something they wouldn't normally get to do. You know, if, if I'm in a privileged enough position to have these opportunities that I can provide people, how can I make sure that I provide them to people that, you know, deserve a go, right? Like someone spotted something in me, similar to your story, Lawrence, you know, how can I be that person for others? And I wonder if that's, is that, do you think that in any way has led to what you're doing now with kind of some of the mentorship work that you do? Absolutely. Because I'm a keen believer is that people can open a door for you, but you've got to step through that door, you know? And I think it's about spot, like Ben said about spotting that talent, but also with someone who is willing to work. You know, there's no point in giving something to someone and they're not willing to work for it, you know, because me just providing the opportunity just to start the hard work begins after that referral because like I said someone introduces you to someone for a job it's up to you to email that person to follow up if you're going to do it two days three weeks later it's not going to have the same impact you know rather than doing it straight away it's about how hungry you are and that's one of the things I say to my um mentors is that I can sit down and talk to you and you know provide you some opportunities but if you don't really want it it's not going to work. And I think it's actually from an early age as possible is for people to learn to take responsibilities for their actions. And unfortunately, that was something I learned later on in my life, you know. And yeah, I've been lucky and privileged that people see something in me. And sometimes I don't see in myself, even at this age now. And that even goes to the imposter syndrome is when people talk to me about saying, oh, you're, you you do this, you're great at this. And I'm like, no, no, no. Or you should go for that. No, no, no. I'm just going to be in the background. It really takes someone to literally just push you on stage. And then you're in front of like 700 people. You're like, oh, I'm here now. I better start talking. Um, so yeah, it's about the individual providing the opportunity, but also you grasping it as well for me. On that though, something you went, something you mentioned earlier is seeing people in roles that kind of you could empathize with, right? Seeing yourself in people in sort of roles that you could aim for. 
So without like where people aren't physically going, I see potential, I'm going to support that. How much of a role does it play? Like with the kids you're mentoring in their aspirations, if they don't see someone in a role that looks like them, sounds like them, kind of has a similar background, do they just discount that as an option entirely? Like do they see themselves doing anything in the world or is there quite a, a fence surrounding what they think they can aim for? I think it's it's a hard one. So let me give an example. When I go and meet my students for the first time, um, it depends where I'm coming from. I might be in a suit. Or even let's just go back to me being a teacher. I'm, I'm, take, I'm talking to a year group. They assume I am born in this suit. They assume <laughs> that I've always potentially had nice things, you know. They don't realise that actually when I was growing up, I was poor. And it got to a certain stage of my life where actually I wanted more than this. You know, that was the driver for me at that age. And it could be different for anyone else. Okay. But the mere fact that I shared that story with them, or I've opened up a bit, it gave me the respect of my pupils of like, he's come from where we are. Or I can take something from that because some of the students in that class might not be coming from the same background. But what they can definitely take from the story or the experience that I'm giving them is that there are two things. Consistency and hard work is the basis of any success and in any story. So anyone can take that, but it's making sure that it's completely clear to them. And I think sometimes as adults, we just go, you need to do this, do this. But why? You don't have the right to ask me why. And it's also going back to that thing where when I was going through school, I saw GCSE as very kind of standalone. I didn't understand what the next step was of why am I doing these GCSEs? Why am I potentially going to uni? Is there another route, another route? So it's explaining all of that to them and actually treating them like young adults because that's what they are as well. Because if you're not giving them the bigger picture, why should I take these blind footsteps? You know? So that's, that's the way I look at it from that bit in terms of breaking down that kind of barrier. So it's not based on like, if you just don't come from the area that I am, it's about finding a way to relate to that individual, that person as well. Lawrence, if your story wasn't already inspiring enough, which it is, like just listening to how you got to what you're doing now is is awesome. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times that you suffer with epilepsy, and along with that comes chronic pain. And I know that you've written about this online as well. And so I just wonder, can you explain a bit how that affects what you're doing now, or has maybe added to the drive that you have, or perhaps has stopped you in your tracks sometimes when you were pushing forward um i think what's definitely helped is i think it might be something that you said before and that it resonated with me is that i failed earlier on in life like really early i encountered failure and it was quite big in my life and it actually taught me not to fear failure it's like actually it's what you learn from it um so going to my epilepsy is that it only developed when i was 16 um and then i had a couple of severe attacks so the one in uni and then the second one was sometime when i was teaching and it was the last last day yeah last day of the summer summer term and it was getting excited was going to don rep um, Dominican Republic, three days later, so really excited. Um, the kids were in tutor time, getting ready to be dismissed, and I had a severe epileptic attack, and um, I banged my head on the oak desk in my office. Um, and I had severe epileptic attacks back-to-back where it had to be sedated, and I was rushed to hospital. And when I came round, um eventually after about three days um i couldn't feel my legs and that's probably the most scariest thing that's ever happened to me 
that I could not feel them at all. And I wanted to ask the doctor the question of like, what's going here? But I was scared. I didn't want to know the answer. So I put up the courage to ask the doctor the question of like, am I going to be able to walk again? And the doctor said, took a deep breath in and said, we'll just have to see him and take it day by day. And essentially that's cold for, we absolutely have no idea. Um, so again, I was annoyed and whatever, but the pe- um, the feeling came back in my legs, but it came back with a vengeance and it felt like someone was taking a chisel to uh, my kneecaps. So ever since then, I've been in chronic pain. Um, and I think just dealing with that initially was hard in itself and having to learn to walk again. So it took me six months to walk a walk again without any physical aids or physiotherapy. And again, a massive shout out to Sheridan, who was completely amazing during that period and put up with me because I was not a nice person. I was just completely angry at the world. And it taught me about resilience. And it also taught me about, you know, having empathy for other people and what they're going through. Because everyone was around me and supportive when I was in hospital. But when you are discharged from hospital, there's something inside us that actually we believe, oh, they're fine now. They're out of hospital. They're completely fine. And that was probably the darkest times and the hardest time for me because not many people were coming in and seeing me, you know, or checking to see how I was. So I would go through days where people were at work and it was just really lonely. Um, but it's probably one of the things I've drawn strength on in terms of if I can get through that, I can get through anything, but it's not just about me. It's about the people that are around me and it's actually asking for help. And that was something that I didn't know how to do because I had moved out from home at the age of 17 and was living by myself and was paying rent and doing everything by myself at the age of 17. So I was used to just getting on with stuff. And I saw asking for help as a sign of weakness. And also in our community, in the black community, to actually say that you are suffering from depression is just a taboo. And I think actually I would say in most communities, even being a man, there is a stigma around it of saying that I'm suffering from depression. And I couldn't physically get the words out of my mouth. So what I decided to do was to write a letter to depression. And I did it in a way that depression had actually infiltrated my house and I did not invite it in and it was lurking around. So it was siphoning off my Wi-Fi. It was was using the electricity and it wasn't paying. I had not invited um, it in. And it helped me to actually express my feelings without actually saying to someone and going, yeah, I think I'm suffering from depression, you know, and it then allowed me to speak to the people that I needed to, um, like in terms of my family and friends. And I think my family found it hard because that was the first t- time they kind of understood that. And I remember saying to my mum, mum, I've written this blog. Um, it's about depression and I think I suffer from depression. And like I said earlier, with mum being a very, um, traditional, um, Nigerian and also Christian, her first reaction was to say, um, in Jesus' name, you do not suffer from depression. And I was like, no, mom, you're missing the point. Like, I'm, I'm trying to tell you that I'm hurting here and I'm suffering from depression. It's not about a prayer here and I respect that and everything, but I'm trying to have a conversation with you. And she, she wasn't getting it. And then after some time, and I think with the work she's now doing, she called me up one day and was like, I totally get it. I, I get what you've been suffering with. And to him, I'm saying you're one of the strongest individuals, not just because you're my son that I know in terms of everything you've been through in terms of like, she brought it up failing and, you know, you know, learning to walk again, putting up your epilepsy um, is that you never let anything stop you. And I think that's the most powerful thing I've heard from anyone with my mum saying that to me. And that just shows how much my mum's come along with me on this journey to actually say she was wrong in that instance and really understand the pain I was suffering with. Yeah. 
I think that gives you a snapshot, hopefully. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm like, it, it's, I, I think I, I'm trying to imagine myself going through that and how I would have coped with it. And um, I just hats off to you, right? And I'm like, it's really interesting to see how that affected the relationship with your mum and how that actually, through all that difficult situation, connected you in a deeper way, right, than, than before as well. Yeah. How absolutely. does that how does that all play out into the mentorship or even the training work that you do now when you're training other people? And you mentioned there, like, don't let anything stop you. But at the same time, I know that uh, you do try at least to make sure that you take a step back when you feel like you need to, when you need to have a rest, because ultimately having a rest means that you're going to be able to come back stronger. How, how does that play into your day-to-day now? Um... It's massive. Uh, I had I had to learn that. I I had to learn that, and Sheridan needed me to learn that for the sake of her as well. Because that I left teaching because of my epilepsy. Um, I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. That interaction with the kids. That moment when a kid goes, "Oh, I get it." There's nothing that replaces that expression on their face, and that kind of gives you that buzz. It's like scoring. Uh, the Emirates, you know, in the last minute, that that's what I could, you know, kind of close to. But I had to leave teaching for my own well-being and my health because I found that I was out of school more than I was in it. And it was getting me down the fact that I wasn't there for the students and the school was very supportive. But even after that, I was still pushing myself because I was on a mission to prove to everyone around me that. I could still take you on. I could still do X, Y, and Z. And there wasn't really any major adjustments. But in fact, there had to be major adjustments because I kept on going in and out of hospital and that would set me back three weeks at a time, four weeks at a time. So after making that decision of leaving teaching, um, I I had no idea what I was going to do after, by the way. There was no plan. It was like, yeah, I'm going to go and focus on the business. But even then, I hadn't... (laughs) For is this business um, viable to sustain my lifestyle? But luckily enough, I met um, both of you two actually after that. Um, and I just started speaking to you. And um, I think I remember this and I think um, Ben might. <laughs> so I think I've spoken to Dean and then Dean had said to me, right, yeah, um, we've got a level one boot camp happening. Um, and I think it was at Luke's school and mm-hmm. I turned up and I remember going up the front and looking like, who's this? Not met him before. And I was like, um, I was expecting to see Dean today. Um, where is he? And then Ben was like, oh, I'm doing it. And I was like, oh, okay. So, yeah, <laughs> so, I, get, I, I, so I got that a lot for a lot. So a lot of the time people would see Dean do training and then they'd come to follow on training because they yeah, thought Dean might be there and they get me. And there was always that, sir, is Dean doing a session today? Like, no, no, it's just me. <laughs> you look disappointed. What's the problem? <laughs> and he actually said that to me. He said to me, you look disappointed. I was like, high pitched, no. No. <laughs> I, had, like, no. I, had some questions. I had some questions for Dean. <laughs> but then again, I still asked them too, Ben. And again, like, it was both of you seeing something in me to be like, hey, we would like you to do some stuff with us. And, and that was an opportunity in itself. And I thank both of you for actually seeing that because there and then I didn't see that. And that's when I was in that process of a transition of leaving school as well and was getting pretty stressed out about what am I going to do? So um, both of you encouraged me to go and do my level one, my level two trainer and stuff like that. Um, and I think, again, that helps. So I've got really different circles that I walk in. I've got like the ed tech, I've got like um, my friends and stuff like that and the school. You don't obviously are my friends, by the way, not just my ed tech colleagues. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so that kind of helped in terms of moving into that environment. And with doing this, it allows me to have that balance, that equilibrium of, of my health and picking the jobs that I can do and not having that guilt of not being in front of the class for the students, because that that's what was really getting me down, of not being there for the students. So, yeah, to answer your question, Dean, this allows what I'm doing now in terms of being a consultant and going to schools, the flexibility and able to put my health at the forefront. 
Nice. And we should probably explain just quickly that we initially met Lawrence through doing training on G Suite for Education tools and going into schools. And then Lawrence now does that training too. And Ben uh, runs a business doing doing that as well. And so that's how we already know each other as friends and colleagues. Um, and hence being able to understand and ask some of these questions of Lawrence, uh, where we already know some of the the background to uh, where you're at at the moment. Can you try and summarize what you do at the moment, Lawrence? Because what I really like is that you do multiple things. And I think as time goes on, we're going to see more and more people in similar positions where you can have a business, you can work for other people, you can do something on the side that you want to do because it's interesting. You know, you can have more than one career at once. Can, are you able to summarize, do you think? I will try summar- I will try and summarize, but um, we were on a family Zoom call yesterday and it was quite funny. My father-in-law was um, speaking to um, all of us and my other brother-in-law. And he was like, well, Stuart, you're an accountant and you deal with numbers. And he was like, well, Lawrence, you do everything. <laughs> I was like, okay, so he clears us on what I do because I'm coming up with loads of stuff. So I think the main things that if I understand what I do is I, I own a web design company um, that's been going for 12 years um, with my business partner, Emmanuel, um, great business partner. Um, I do ed tech consultancy and training for schools, um, charities um, as well. But my real kind of passion and what I thought about that I wanted to do is that you can make loads of money but that just disappears over time. And I thought, actually, what do I want to be remembered for? And I started to think about legacy. And now when you say this to people, they look at you as like, who do you think you are talking about legacy? And I don't care. I do want to leave a legacy for my children and actually for people that just hear my name, Lawrence Tajani, that I stand for an idea of that you can achieve anything no matter where you come from no matter what disability you have and that's where i started up just a guy and it's now turned into a foundation in terms of it's opening up my life story to people because i find that when people do open up to you they might not say actually i'm going through this but if they can take something from that you've helped them so that's where just a guy foundation has come in and that's kind of my passion and what I'm trying to drive forward with, and that's where I do the mentoring under. So um, anyone who's listening to this, if you're interested in working with young students or young adults, please do get in contact because I think the more people that are involved with this, the bigger and better it is, and the students get access to a great resource of people because there are loads of people doing amazing things. And I think sometimes we sit down and think, what do I have to offer? And I think every individual has something powerful to offer. I can't do it myself. You know, I won't hit every student or every young adult, but your story, your experience might just do that. And we'll put some links in the show notes as well to go and get more information. Can you share a little bit about an event you did at the end of last year, just to give us an idea of the kind of work that you're doing through Just The Guy? (laughs) Yeah, so I set up an event called um, Step Up with Digital Skills, and that was focusing on students um, looking at basic digital literacy skills. So um, Google has something called Applied Digital Skills, but I wanted to take it one step further and think, right, you've got your year 11s and year 13s um, who are potentially going into the real world, be it an apprentice or going on to software engineering. Let me correct myself there because I really feel sorry for students when we say the real world. They live in the real world. It's just that they have a different battle at a different time. Um, So I want to create an event where they would go around and get a taster of the different skills that I felt was important for them to have. So being able to communicate uh, some of the basic um, scripting as well, but was more so actually communicating with each other because that's one of the things that I found in in London that students struggle to talk to each other. And then also we had a panel of guests um, that came from a range of different um, backgrounds and were in different fields. And they gave a short presentation 
And then students were able to ask them questions on like, how did they get into that field? And um, Tim Campbell uh, came and gave a fantastic, I would say, like mini keynote right at the end. He caught us all off guard, but it was so powerful and impactful on the students. Um, so I'm looking to do so many more of those events. And yeah, it, it, I think it was good. Um, I don't know if Ben wants to chip in over what he thought of that event there because he did attend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was there. Um, and actually, so Tim, Tim Campbell, for those that don't know, was um, on The Apprentice. Uh, so he won The Apprentice, worked with Alan Sugar. But interestingly, he talked a lot about how, like, if he could go back, he wouldn't have done that. Uh, and it was like such a uh, a false part of everything. And like, the, there's much more value in, yeah, he would never suggest. And he didn't. He suggested to all of those kids, don't go chasing a TV program. Um, that's not the way to take a sort of get to what you need to do. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a, a really inspiring event for a number of reasons. One, Lawrence talked briefly about like the groups and his friends. Well, what a group of friends you have, friends and family, because actually he pulled in some amazing, I would say not really favors, but just support from uh, from family and friends that were there on the day providing prizes, doing the setup. So it was really, it was really amazing to work with them. Um, the kids on the day as well, I did, a, I did a design sprint, very short version of a design sprint with the kids. And it was great to do it with um, some young people rather than adults. Adults play along a lot of the time. Um, whereas the, the kids did what? a lot more what they feel like and asked a lot more sort of insightful questions uh, when we tried to take on the challenge of like improving a tube journey. Um, interesting now that that is a whole <laughs> new challenge to take on. Absolutely. Um, but there was, there were some, there were a few group of girls that were taking on what it, what it's like to travel on the tube as a young girl. Um, and that's different to the experience I would have on the tube. Um, so there's some nice just opportunities to share, um, and it was it was a really nice event, really interesting event to be involved with. And you've hinted that you want to do some more. What does the next version look like, Lawrence? I think what the next event looks like is bigger and better. Um, I want students to have an input in how the event is run because it was very much led by us and saying what we thought they needed but we didn't ask them what they needed. So I want to make sure they get a lot more out of that. Um, I actually want to include some drama in it in terms of them communicating because in being in large audiences and having to talk, I think that's a key thing there. And that's something that I suffer from. I know a lot of people suffer from in terms of when they go for job interviews of being able to express themselves as well. So things like that, I definitely want to, um, have there. I think it's stuff that they can take away from an event and use tomorrow. I think that's the key thing. If you go to an event, I want people to be able to use it tomorrow and go, this is what I'm going to do. And it's had an impact on their life as well. And actually, I want people, that students that have come to our events to come back and lead events. I think if we've got that going, then that is success for us, essentially. Okay, so let's make it happen. I, th I really like what you said about leaving a legacy, Lawrence. So I think we'll just close with one last question, which is let's roll on 10 more years in the Tajani life. What's that going to look like, do you think? I think it goes back to what I um, mentioned earlier about the legacy is that representing an idea. I, I just feel that's powerful in terms of you can do anything. It, it's an idea. It doesn't matter what it is. Go and do it and try but don't go and do it irresponsibly i'm not going to be one of those kind of self-help people say yeah go and do it throw all your money at, at it it's about taking a measured risk and going for it and believing in yourself and you know getting rid of that um imposter syndrome it's not easy it is hard but i believe everyone has their skill and you just got to find what that skill is for you and believe in yourself you know I've come overcome a lot of adversity, but I haven't done it by myself. It's the people around me. I am blessed and lucky to have really 
intelligent, clever, thoughtful people that teach me stuff every day. Um, I learn from people. I mean, just you two alone, I've learned so much uh, from both of you over the years. Just listening to both of you talk as well when you give presentations is literally, yeah. I, I need to maybe just a bit of that, you know. So I think always go and learn. And 10 years time, I hope to have a full foundation that is helping thousands of children and young adults across the UK. And hopefully set up scholarships for students. That would be amazing for university. If I can get that, I'm like, yeah, I'm happy. All right, let's set the date for the follow-up podcast interview with your scholars. Huge thank you for your time. It's been really interesting to hear some of the, uh, the, the sort of yarns that have led us to this point um, and really some incredible messages as well. Um, so thank you for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. Stay safe um, and we'll see you on the other side. I just want to say thank you for having me on. Um, it's been fantastic just going down memory lane. And I'm actually missing not being out and do mentoring. So hopefully um, some students will listen to this and take something from it. So thank you for having me on. Thanks, Lawrence. Been an awesome, uh, awesome podcast to hear your story and looking forward to seeing what happens next for sure. 